drawing room over here. Welcome to The Drawing Room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Sarah Dingle. What does it mean to be part of a community? And to what extent are we defined by our relationships? In her new book, People Who Lunch, Sally Olds takes us from largely forgotten fraternal orders to the communal experience of a nightclub, from supposed transgressions at the Venice Biennale to the politics of polyamory, and explores how the different pieces of our lives fit together. Sally is my guest in the drawing room this evening. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Sally, let's start where the book starts. Introduce us to the fabulously named Royal Antediluvian Order of Buffaloes. (laughs) Yeah, the buffaloes, as they're sort of colloquially known, or the buffs, as they call themselves. Um, Yeah, so the buffaloes are a fraternal order, secret society, if you like, that started in London in 1822, and then sort of migrated all over the world, um, mostly to kind of like colonial outposts like Australia. Um, So they hit Australia and then spread throughout all of the major cities and also towns, small communities and set up shop, yeah, all across Australia. Um, Also places like South Africa, um, America as well. Um, And they're, yeah, a fraternal society. So it's all men. Um, They have the sort of values of brotherhood and equality. And what they do together, I guess, is what I was interested in finding out. Um, Yeah, why? why have this society? I think we, we're all interested in finding that mm-hmm. out. What do they do behind closed doors? What what did they do? Well, so there were so many rumours flying around. Um, so I first heard of the Buffaloes when I was going to a nightclub called Hugs and Kisses. And then someone mentioned to me one day that downstairs at the nightclub were the headquarters of the Buffaloes, who I hadn't heard of before, and they rented their upstairs space to this nightclub. So there were lots of rumours flying around among like nightclub patrons and friends. And as if you'd mentioned it to somebody, they would have a rumour. So there was a rumour that they were a secret gay club. There was a rumour that they were satanic. There was um, all sorts of things. But I think ultimately what they do is just hang out, really. Um, I think, yeah, they, they support each other sometimes financially through raising funds for each other. Um, but the, it's also just a social space. Um, having said that, I think my own kind of presence at the club, like investigating them, talking to them over a long period of time, meant that I wouldn't necessarily find out any secrets. Like, obviously, they were going to keep their secrets if they had any. um, Yeah. So we don't know if they are, in fact, satanic. Um, But (laughs) you you describe them as a sort of a hybrid of union plus insurance plus welfare. Um, Absolutely. So a lot of these clubs kind of started... Um, not precisely as unions, not precisely as welfare, not precisely as social clubs, but something messy in between all of those things. So they would, yeah, raise money if a member passed away for funeral costs or were out of work or injured or um, for their families or for members of the community who are in need. They would, like I said, do a lot of hanging out, um, eating together, chatting, drinking, singing songs, playing music. And, yeah, they would also, I guess, in later years kind of shed these origins and transform into all kinds of things. So they would transform into like banks or financial institutions. Um, but the Buffaloes kind of stayed stayed in this like weird hybrid space and just um, yeah maintained that identity up until now. 
So you're standing at Hugs and Kisses in the nightclub, uh, hearing about this mysterious group of men. Do you see the modern nightclub as comparable in some ways to those old fraternal mm. orders, that there's a certain sense of kinship in both? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was something I was really interested in. Obviously, kind of writes itself like a nightclub upstairs, a men's club downstairs. And the two did mingle sometimes, so the buffaloes um, would go upstairs to the nightclub. And, I was going to say, mingling um, only in one direction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The clubbers would not really go downstairs and I don't. I doubt they would be allowed downstairs. But yeah, um, I do see there's, I think there's some parallels there. There's for sure like a sense of kind of ad hoc community. I think the Buffaloes formalise that, but in nightclubs, especially in queer clubs, there's a sense of community that forms. That idea of community is one that threads throughout all your essays, whether it's uh, the buffs or the examination of polyamory. What what draws you to the connections that we make with each other? That's a good question. I, lots of things. Um, I think the kind of communities that we build are often in response to the circumstances we find ourselves in. So, so I, you know, I think the Buffaloes, for instance, they formed as a kind of working class club and actually they formed as a guild for actors in London and other clubs formed in response to particular like, workplace conditions or whatever. So I think we always form our relationships uh, in response to the things going on around us. I guess the book is interested in a lot in capitalism and the kind of like alienating conditions that a lot of us in the West find ourselves in in work and the way those conditions sort of infect our relationships, but also the way our relationships attempt to like protect us from those alienated conditions or to create something new. And that's something that's throughout all of the book. All of these communities I'm talking about have some particular relationship to capitalism. Sometimes formed in in sort of opposition to or in protest of mm, mm-hmm. the popular structures, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, sometimes more explicit than others. So, uh, for instance, in the polyamory stuff in the book um, and when I'm talking about communes and communal living, ex- like experiments that have happened throughout history, that stuff is has very, like, utopian bent and is very explicitly anti-capitalist and formed against that. And other spaces, I think, are more ambivalent. One of the interesting sort of threads um, in the polyamory essay is that the meaning of relationships change over time. So polyamory isn't the same now as it once was, but neither is the idea of monogamous romantic love. Can you tell Mm. us about how those things have changed over time? Yeah, well, start with polyamory. Um, I think where I started with uh, thinking about polyamory was taking it as it is now, which I think is a kind of, to me, is kind of depressingly banal and just has very modest ambitions for what what a relationship can be. And um, <laughs> polyamory not ambitious enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, you know, as I say in the essay, I think it makes itself small in response to. Um, crit- criticism and because it is kind of a marginal pursuit a lot of the time and people are kind of people who practice polyamory in the minority um, it tries to put itself I guess yeah yeah put itself in a modest little box to be acceptable in the same way that I think you know like queerness has had to do that in the past so 
I was really interested in expanding what we think of as polyamory now by looking at its history. And you can find its history in lots of places, but you can, I think, especially find it, most interestingly find it in like these experiments in communal living um, in the 20th century, especially in the 70s. Um, you just have to take the word polyamory as a, as a starting point. So it was coined by a self-described witch named Morning Glory in the 90s. And she had a commune and she had many lovers and she had a, a partner. She had many long-term partners. So as soon as you just look at the word itself, like embedded in that word is this huge, rich and like very strange and interesting history. And monogamous romantic love, how has that changed? It sounds like a fairly set thing. I think monogamous romantic love has always been tied up in like ideas of property and ownership. Um, not that polyamory hasn't, and that's obviously something I explore in the book, but um, it has been interesting, I think, to like for me to look at monogamy and relationships in terms of the economics of them. So what are we doing when we get married? Like we are kind of pooling resources where enacting legal protections for ourselves. We're doing all kinds of things that don't necessarily have that much to do with love as we think of it. I think monogamy is as complicated as polyamory. Um, it has changed over time. Its definitions have expanded to include queer people um, and other things as well. And our understanding of these histories isn't always consistent either, is it? You note that both going back to the buffs, both mm. the Order of the Buffaloes and polyamorous writers have created their own histories, which are open to interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, especially the buffs. I think that's a that's a fun thing to look at is the way people rewrite their own histories. Um, the the buffaloes have, I think, selectively written their history over time. I think polyamorous people do that. I think I think everybody kind of indulges in a little bit of like um, self narrativization. On ABC RN, I'm Sarah Dingle. Sally Olds is my guest in the drawing room and we're talking about her book, People Who Lunch. Work and post-work is a recurring theme throughout your writing. What do you mean by post-work? It sounds great. <laughs> totally. Yeah, so post-work isn't just the, like, um, you know, knocking off at five and that's post-work. Post-work describes a particular particular set of politics, Um I'm not the coiner of this term at all. It's It has like a much longer history than just me. Um, but post-work is the idea that humankind shouldn't have to rely on waged labour or unwaged labour to live. So right now, um, you know, I have two jobs. I have to work a lot to pay rent, pay the bills. Post-work is the idea that you shouldn't have to do that to lead like a, a good, fulfilling life. But if you don't, of course... How, where does the stuff that you live on come from, I guess, is, is the question mm. that people have mm. puzzled over for many, many, many years. How did that become a central idea for you and your writing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of what all of these communities are doing. There, Many of them are attempting to figure out a way to avoid work <laughs> or to ditch work. Um, it's kind of a, a job in itself, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Like there's a lot of hard work that goes into these attempts to escape work. And that's a, that's a funny thing in the book. Um, and I mean, it, it became a central thing because it was a problem in my own life. Um, I, yeah, was working a lot just before I started writing this book and have always had casual jobs, you know, usually more than one at a time. 
and also juggling that with writing, trying to make it all work. Um, so, you know, it was a problem I was wrestling with and perhaps an attempt to justify my own um, poor work ethic <laughs> when it comes to things that aren't writing. Um, and it became, yeah, a central theme in the book because the kind of flowering of of ambitions that happen when you when you take away work as a central force in somebody's life or when you attempting to escape work like what happens then that that to me is really interesting and that's when you get things like communes springing up I want to take a, a slight kind of detour from your work for a second and ask you about quiet quitting, which has been a, a big buzzword lately. But it relates to this notion of, of post-work almost, doesn't it? It's mm. like the step before post-work. Yeah. Look, I haven't actually followed the quiet quitting thing that much. I've sort of like dismissed it as um, like social media chatter, but maybe that's unfair as me. Um, what I understand is that it's the idea of kind of doing the bare minimum. Is that right? Yeah, the bare minimum and really, really the bare mm. minimum. Like right. not devoting any more of yourself, any, mm. <laughs> a drop more than you have to to get whatever your basic functions are done. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, to that I just say join your union or start a union because you, like, you should have um, codified roles and jobs that are well paid and that um, you negotiate together as a workplace. And I think that's yeah I think like discussions of work or like quitting or whatever that don't talk about these like you know militant and activist infrastructures that are already in place like unions I don't think they're super valuable like we need to be having conversations that that include activist positions like unionism. Well from activism to the opposite uh, you mm. write that leisure is Whatever is necessary to restore the worker to the full capacity required by their work. But mm. does that detract from leisure itself? It, it basically suggests that leisure is only what you need in order to work. Mm. It's, it's prioritising the work, isn't it? Yeah. That, so that idea comes from Marx and, um, and also like Marxist feminists. Um, so, yeah, that idea is the idea that leisure you know, under capitalism, I think, yeah, you're right. Like leisure is kind of like a reduced, well, it's in a reduced form to what it potentially could be because I'm sure we've all had the experience of knocking off work and you have to cook dinner, you have to like wash your dishes, iron your clothes for the next day, you go to sleep. So in theory, we have, you know, eight hours work and then eight hours play, eight hours rest. Um, but in practice, we have like 10 hours work and you know, eight hours sleep and it doesn't leave much time for much else. So I think in practice we can see it playing out um, beyond just the, the Marxist theories. How then should we think about leisure? Is it whatever is necessary to restore the worker to the full capacity required by their work? Plus, you know, some sort of bonus? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the full capacity required by their work. I think, yeah, in that you have to, yeah, you have to politicize work and leisure at the same time. Um, so if you want, if a, you know, a more like fruitful experience of leisure time, then you have to think about what work is doing. And I think it comes down to time. Yeah. People have to have time and you have to be in control of your own time. So if you change the conditions of work, you're going to change the conditions of leisure. I guess I'm interested in also what happens if you change leisure. 
it's I think it comes down to really practical things as well, like having good public space that, um, you know, is not conditional and that you don't have to pay to be in. Yeah, having good conditions at work, having good public transport. Like there's, I think these questions feed onto heaps and heaps of political questions in society. When you sit down to write your preferred form of work, vastly preferred, um, how does an essay begin for you? Does it start with an idea or a moment of curiosity, like when you're in Hugs and Kisses nightclub, or just a lot of research? Um, usually a curiosity. Um, yeah, I usually notice something. So in that case, it was noticing noticing that there was this building in the CBD that held hugs and kisses I'd been going to for years thinking about like where the building came from and who who it had housed the polyamory stuff it was like a, a provocation from my own life um with the crypto essay it was because I was having conversations with friends about crypto um so it usually starts as something that's going on in my own life or a curiosity like a question that I can't let go and when you talk about that source of inspiration, where do you draw the line? How do you decide how much of yourself to include and how much you reserve from the world? Yeah, that's a hard thing. Um, And I really, I think changes in essay to essay. Sometimes the work just doesn't need much of yourself. And in this book, I really wanted it to be kind of outward focused, um, I wanted me in there as a guide um, and in some places I'm I'm very present, but I really wanted it to be a book of me like, yeah, walking around, talking to people, visiting places, that kind of like almost gonzo journalism. So yeah, the place, I guess, I guess I put myself in there when, when I, I don't know, when I see the need for like some internal reflection or to anchor my reflections in experience because everything I'm writing about in the book is something I have experienced or I've kind of have some kind of first-hand knowledge of it but it's a hard question and I think it is a really tricky balancing act. One of the essays in this collection examines the history of the essay. Um, How do you avoid becoming self-conscious when you're looking so closely at what you're creating? It's a sort of you know continual loop. Do you mean like self-conscious in my writing or? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I do avoid that. <laughs> and, that's, that's very honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's necessarily much wrong with having a sense of self-consciousness in your writing. Like it can be a particular style or pose that you that you put on for the writing. Um, and also it can be kind of funny sometimes. But uh yeah, I don't know. Like, so how do I avoid it? I guess I look to others as well. So I'm whenever I'm writing something that relates to myself, I'm reading other people's work. I'm talking to other people. Um, I feel like I'm one ingredient among many in the work. And you write that having a good time is so often a question of duration, of knowing mm. when to stop. Is that also true for a piece of writing? It definitely is. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, it's hard. It's always hard to know when to end a piece and where to end it. It's hard to know where to begin it. Um, it's all about like finding, yeah, it's all about going deep in the right places and drawing back in the right places. You don't want to, you never want to waffle on too long, but you have to get enough juice in there. So it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
At the risk of running out of juice, we will leave it there. (laughs) Sally Olds, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Sally Olds has been my guest in the drawing room and People Who Lunch is out now through Upswell. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.